Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. There had been abuse in my family, uh, but it was mostly musical in nature. Are you ready to get your world rocked? Ready! Are you ready to get your mind blown? Do it! One, two, three, four! Rock and roll is filled with memorable lyrics, but some songs can deliver the most powerful messages with no words at all. I'm Greg Cott from the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. Today we name our favorite instrumentals, and we review the latest from the doom metal band Trouble. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. Beyonce with a track called Grown Woman, the only new song that she's performing on her current North American tour. We had anticipated getting a completely new album from Beyonce by this point, but no such luck. Remember that she performed at the Super Bowl back in February. She's got this big tour going now, and yet no new album to promote. Our record company must be a little bit upset because there had been some talk that the album would be out by the spring. Now we're getting word, according to The Hollywood Reporter, that she has scrapped the entire thing. Fifty songs have gone by the boards. Uh, Diplo was the guy who came out with the story that he had a couple of songs that he anticipated getting on the record. Now he'd been told they were no longer under consideration. Apparently also scrapped were songs by Ryan Tedder, The Dream, Saya, Diane Warren, Neo. Uh, Neo said that uh, Beyonce was still trying to figure out a direction for the album as of June. Not a good sign for a major superstar release with all these promotional opportunities going by the board. 
you know, you contrast what's going on in the Beyonce camp with people like Katy Perry and Lady Gaga, who already have fall release dates for their new studio albums, and they're rolling out cell phone apps, and, and singles are, are being scheduled, so they appear to be right on schedule. Usually these things roll out like the Normandy invasion. You know, it's D-Day when a record company's got a superstar release. But in the case of Beyonce, her career is looking a little rudderless since she parted ways with her manager, who also happened to be her father, Matthew Knowles, prior to the release of her four album in 2011. That album was also fraught with difficulties, a big multi-million dollar production recorded all over the world. She scrapped a lot of songs, put a lot of new songs in, wasn't quite sure about the direction. She had indicated it was going to be a far left-leaning record. It turned out to be a lot more conservative than she had initially let on. So now there's some real question about where Beyonce's career is going. I think she needs to take a cue from her sister, Solange, Greg, and just go indie underground with it. Greg, Jack White of the White Stripes is making a lot of friends these days, accruing a lot of good karma with some really notable acts. He has given a substantial amount of money, $200,000, to the National Recording Preservation Foundation, which has been tasked since 2000 and hasn't gotten very far yet with preserving old cylinder recordings, acetates, reel-to-reels, these early recording media which are disintegrating and need to be preserved before they, they vanish, much as in the film world, as in some of the classic films, the stock is just deteriorating. It was set up as an independent, non-profitable charitable organization, and Jack has given it this money. Meanwhile, Detroit, his native city, is in bankruptcy, one of the great American rock and roll cities, and Jack's been doing his part there, too. A few years ago, he gave $170,000 to repair a basketball field at Detroit's Clark Park, where he used to play as a kid. Now he's given $142,000 in back taxes that were owed by the Masonic Temple. It was about to go into foreclosure. Some great rock shows had happened in the theater at that temple, and Jack was going there since he was a kid because his mom worked as an usher there. They have now renamed the theater the Jack White Theater. So lots of good acts from Jack White, who was on the show in 2012. He's welcome back anytime. One, two, three. Crazy Mama from J.J. Kale. We're playing that because J.J. Uh, Kale died at the age of 74. Very influential artist. Not particularly known as a performer or an artist in his own right, but as a songwriter and as an influence on guitar. Pretty wide spectrum of people that he influenced. Uh, people like Clap, Eric Clapton, Maria Muldaur, Jerry Garcia, Santana, Captain Beefheart, Waylon Jennings, Leonard Skinner, Widespread Panic. They all covered his songs. His biggest hit was Crazy Mama, went number 22 in 1972. But uh, people like Clapton with After Midnight and Cocaine and Skinner with Call Me the Breeze had bigger hits. 
The other thing that's worth pointing out about this guy, very mellow, kind of laid-back style, Oklahoma guy, came through the scene with people like Leon Russell, Carl Radel, and David Gates, who all moved out to Los Angeles in the 60s, was that guitar style that he came up with. Clapton was hugely influenced by it. And uh, Neil Young, in his autobiography recently, had some really nice words to say about Kale. He said, Crazy Mama by J.J. Kale is a record I love. The song is true, simple, and direct, and the delivery is very natural. J.J.'s guitar playing is a huge influence on me. His touch is unspeakable. I am stunned by it. Coming back to me Listening to Sound Opinions, and that is the great Link Ray with the instrumental Deuces Wild. Greg, we are going to tackle today something we've been talking about doing forever, the greatest instrumentals in rock ever. That was a suggestion from one of our listeners, John Ryan. We've got a bunch of suggestions. You and I have our picks. But first, we have to talk about how we define instrumental. We were arguing here at Sound Opinions headquarters over like three separate sessions for 90 minutes about an instrumental. Now, if it had any vocals in it at all, a la-la-la, right? Even if it was wordless, we were thinking, well, that's not fair. But what if it's a yelp or a grunt or how are we going to define it? Personally, to me, a great instrumental is a song that tells a story without words. It doesn't need lyrics. It doesn't need sung vocals. It is using instruments and possibly even using the voice as an instrument to tell a story only with music. I mean, what, what were you thinking? Well, I agree with you. I think the whole idea of jazz, I'm a big jazz head, and, and a lot of people denigrate rock musicians or hip-hop musicians or soul musicians in comparison to their jazz peers. But I think what we find in, in doing the show is that there are some incredible players, incredible musicians out there who can tell a complete story without words. And that's the whole point of the show. As usual, when we do a show like this, we like to start with a coin toss. Who's on the uh, coin, Greg? I think we should go with two of the most iconic instrumental bands of all time. I'm going to pick the Tornadoes as one. All right, and I'll go with the Ventures. The coin's in the air. And the Ventures win. Now, I I would have gone with Wipeout, okay? One of the greatest drum solos of all time in the middle of that instrumental, but the band does shout Wipeout, and those are words. I think that's disqualifying Wipeout. But I think, really, you know, we've got to start in the surf era. I wanted to go to Dick Dale. It's amazing we have never played Dick Dale on this show. He is an incredible guitarist, born Richard Anthony Mansoor. He's 76 years old now. He was a Lebanese American, and he was fascinated with the sounds of his native land. And when he attacked guitar instrumentals in the surf era in the early 60s, he was bringing in that knowledge of the Middle Eastern drones and atonality and different scales 
themselves. And this would lay the foundation very much for psychedelic rock, beginning to think outside the box in terms of what a guitar can do in an instrumental. He also, I think, was an incredible storyteller with his guitar. The song Miserloo is probably his best-known hit because it was in the film Pulp Fiction, and it was really perfectly used in that movie. But he didn't write it. It dates all the way back into the early 1920s. It was a folk song that originated in, in, there's different stories, Turkey, Egypt, Greece. And then, you know, there were different versions. There was Middle Eastern Arabic belly dancing versions, and there were klezmer versions. But, you know, I think Dick Dale owned it. You know, it's very inspiring. I have a band, and the guitarist in the band, his his nine-year-old kid, he named Fender, Mm. all right, after the guitar and after Leo Fender. They went to see Dick Dale only a week ago, and Dick, at age 76, is still a monster and still playing the very first left-handed guitar that Leo Fender ever made him. You know, Fender saw Dale playing the upside-down guitar strung weirdly and said, well, I'm going to make you one just for you. And he gave it to him. But Dick has continued to this day, half a century later, to string it the way he learned to play it. And and in the middle of, of the performance, he gave young Fender a guitar pick that was absolutely shredded. The man is still a monster. And I love him for that. Here is Dick Dale with Miserloo on Sound Opinions. Dale with Miserloo from 1962 on Sound Opinions. Greg, what's your first instrumental? Jim, I'm going to go with another guitar icon from the same era. I would argue that Dwayne Eddy has his, had as big an influence on the guitar becoming the iconic rock and roll instrument as just about anybody else. People like George Harrison and Jeff Beck you know, basically said we owe our careers to seeing Dwayne Eddy play the guitar in the late 50s, early 60s. And I think one of the songs that really put him on the map was the one I'm going to play next. 
Oddly enough, it was written by that great rock and roller, Henry Mancini. Yeah. I mean, nobody associates Mancini with rock and roll, but the riff he came up with uh, for Peter Gunn as the theme music for that network TV Private Eye series that was broadcast from 1958 through 61 is pretty iconic. Oh, there's only about 500 rock songs that rip that oh off. Oh, my God. The number of people who have covered this song, I mean, we're talking about Jeff Beck, Elvis Presley, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Pulp covered it. King Curtis. I mean, you put those people together in a bag and say, what do they all have in common? Well, they have Henry Mancini's Peter Gunn in common. But the version that I think is definitive is the one that Dwayne Eddy played in 1959, the best and toughest of all. You know, when he hit that low E string on that guitar, it just seemed to reverberate through your bones when he would play it. You could just hear it coming through. No wonder these young, aspiring guitar players were so inspired when they heard that sound coming across the airwaves. He had that twang on the bass string, lots of reverb, and then he had a great band. A lot of the players in his band went on to become part of that great wrecking crew that played on a lot of those California studio sessions in the 60s, including the saxophone player on this song, Steve Douglas. Here's Dwayne Eddy with Peter Gunn on Sound Opinions. Wayne Eddy with Peter Gunn on Sound Opinions. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, we'll play more of our favorite wordless tracks. Then Jim and I review a new release from the Chicago metal quartet, Trouble.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and we're playing our favorite instrumental tracks of all time. That's one of mine from the great New Orleans R&B section, The Meters, called Sissy Strut. This was an era when these house rhythm sections defined a sound, defined a city in many ways. The Meters defined New Orleans R&B in the 60s and 70s. You had the great rhythm section in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. You had the great Motown rhythm section defining what was going on in Detroit. The uh, wrecking crew out on California playing on all those sessions in the 60s and 70s. And then you had Booker T and the MGs defining the Memphis sound in the 60s. What a great rhythm section. Booker T. Jones on keyboards, classically trained musician, Steve Cropper on guitar, Donald Duck Dunn on bass, and L. Jackson on drums. Not only did they back up countless sessions at the Stax Volt label in Memphis, we're talking about people like Otis Redding, Sam and Dave, Johnny Taylor, Carla and Rufus Thomas, Wilson Pickett, but they also had their own career going as an instrumental group. Stax was putting out these instrumental records by Booker T and the MGs, beginning with uh, Green Onions in 1962. I mean, everybody knows that song, right? Fantastic riff, fantastic groove. I'm going to go a little deeper into their career. By late 60s, they were on the charts consistently and yet had one of their biggest hits in 1969, a track called Time is Tight. This is from Booker T. and the MGs in 1969 on Sound Opinions.
That was Time is Tight by Booker T and the MGs. They've also been guests on Sound Opinions, Greg. You know, we're going chronologically here in our picks. And although punk upset the apple cart in terms of turning everything inside out, looking at rock history, you know, beginning at day zero, they did take some of the best things from the past, including instrumentals. There were a number of fine punk era instrumentals but for my money the very best of them came from the art punk band wire on its classic 1977 album pink flag i am on record many times as calling this an unqualified masterpiece this is probably my all-time favorite rock record ever 21 songs a suite that makes comment on the entire history of rock and roll and it only makes sense that as you would have flipped from side one of the old vinyl to side two after the harrowing title track of Pink Flag comes a little tune called The Commercial. It's a little breather right in the middle of these 21 songs at number 11, 49 seconds of uh, essentially TV commercial music done punk style, done art punk style in the inimitable Wire way. Here's Wire with The Commercial from 77 on Sound Opinions. Wire with the commercial on Sound Opinions. 49 seconds of brilliance, Greg. Not an unnecessary note. We threw the question of great instrumentals out to you, our listeners, via Facebook and Twitter, and we got a lot of really cool responses. Drew James of West Allis, Wisconsin, chose Frank Zappa's Peaches and Regalia. A lot of great instrumental work on Zappa's voluminous catalog, but this was Drew's favorite. This one is very close to my own heart. Amy Loberger of Oak Creek, Wisconsin said, Led Zeppelin's Moby Dick. A few more to read here, Jim. Andy Mitchell from Chicago with Fortet, My Angel Rocks Back and Forth. We had John Chrysos from Rochester, New York with Simple Minds, Theme for Great Cities. 
another instrumental suggestion from Marshall Preddy of Houston, who had Uncle Tupelo with Sandusky. go to the mid-90s now, Jim, talking about this intersection of ambient music out of Europe and dub music from Jamaica. A very interesting series of recordings came out during this period, very well documented, on a record that I still play to this day. It's called 1AD Volume 1 Ambient Dub. It was put out by this little Arizona-based label called Waveform that did a tremendous job of documenting this scene uh, during that time. This is kind of dance music. I mean, it was labeled dance music, quote-unquote, but it could be enjoyed over headphones, you know, kind of the music you could be crashed out on your couch chilling out to. And really, that's what it was all about. It wasn't about the heat of the club, you know, at its peak moment, but more the morning after or the chill-out moment when you get back from the club and you need something to sort of relax to. This was great music for that. Background music, but also the kind of music with enough detail and subtlety and nuance in it that could be enjoyed with a close listening. The track I'm going to play is from a Birmingham, UK project led by one Bobby Bird called Higher Intelligence Agency, and they made a series of great recordings in this vein during that period, that sort of reggae-influenced dance music. Here's a track called Spectral from the 1AD compilation from Higher Intelligence Agency on Sound Opinions. Thank you. 
That's Spectral from Higher Intelligence Agency from 1994 on Sound Opinions. Jim, where are you going to go next? I'm going to stay with you in the mid-90s, Greg, and in the electronic field. We're having this surge of electronic dance music around the world right now. But but this wasn't <laughs> the first time we've had this. In the early to mid-90s, I think there was an incredible burst of creativity as people began making music for the dance floor, but with an eye towards real album-like storytelling. Incredible artists, Aphex Twin, Moby, The Orb, Orbital. But I'm going to play one I've never played here on Sound Opinion's Future Sound of London. This was a British duo, Gary, sometimes called Gaz Cobain, and Brian Dugans. A lot of people love their 94 album Life Forms, but I thought the masterpiece was the album that followed it called Dead Cities from 96. They were voracious in their sampling. You have Ennio Morricone samples and you have Run DMC samples. They were all over the map musically. Some of these are rapid fire dance tracks and some of them are very creepy ambient. What they were doing was telling the tale of a wasted futuristic landscape that is part Brazil and part Blade Runner. I was trying to disqualify the tracks that had any vocal and, and, you know, sampling here and there. You know, a voice whispers in your ear, we have explosives. And then they blow up, okay? But I went to a track that is called Antique Toy. In my mind, as this movie plays in my head over the course of this album, in the midst of this chaotic, war-strewn disaster area, somebody stumbles across a little toy. And that's what this sounds like. The track is called Antique Toy, and you can hear and see the toy. I love this. Future Sound of London on Sound Opinions.
Antique Toy by Future Sound of London. If you want to share your own favorite instrumental on the air or comment on anything in the rock world, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back with our final picks and a review of the new album by the metal band Trouble. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and we're running down our favorite instrumentals of all time. I'm going to go back to Deltron 3030 from 2000, the debut album by this alternative hip-hop group that included Dan the Automator, Kid Koala, and the rapper Del the Funky Homo Sapien. Now, I think one of the great things about the hip-hop era, and in keeping with this mix-and-match collage-style programming that's going on over the last couple of decades is that we're getting stripped-down instrumental albums, taking the rap vocals off the top and just getting down to the production. And in the case of somebody like Dan the Automator, who's a very skilled beat maker, well worth the ride. The Deltron 3030 album, even without Del the Funky Homo Sapiens rap vocals, is an outstanding musical achievement because you've got two geniuses. You've got Dan the Automator putting together the, the production, the textures, and you've got scratch beats from uh, Kid Koala, I mean, one of the great turntablists of the last two decades. Now, you know, you, you were talking about this sci-fi concept, Jim, in a number of these instrumental records. You know, kind of you can imagine this movie in your head playing with this music underneath it. And that's exactly what Deltron 3030 was going on about in its debut. This is a concept album set in the future. There's this single heroic figure fighting the mighty corporations that have taken <laughs> over the world. But, you know, the instrumental aspect of this, Nakamura, key figure in the Northern California hip-hop scene of, of that period, working on the Soul Sides label and alongside artists like DJ Shadow and Latirix. And then you've got Kid Koala, a genius himself, combining their talents here for the instrumental record. Here's an example of what they're up to. It's a track called Mastermind from Deltron 3030 on Sound Opinions.
Mastermind by Deltron 3030, one of Greg Cott's instrumental picks. We've been going in chronological order, but we've been thinking very similarly, Greg. I'm going to end up in the late 90s as well with a track from Mark's Keyboard Repair, the first solo album by Mark Ramos Nishita, a keyboard genius, best known for 20-odd years of collaboration with the Beastie Boys, who, I will add, had a lot of great instrumentals on a lot Mm -hmm. of those records. But also, you know, Mark was called in by anybody who was anybody in the 90s who wanted a cool, funky, analog synth sound. This record was extraordinary because there are something like 30, 35 tracks of all short instrumental keyboard-driven pieces that since have turned up on countless other hip-hop records, which really brings us to the current moment. because It it was like a record that was made to be sampled. But each and every one of those short instrumentals, meanwhile, stands on its own as a wonderful piece of music that, that you can enjoy without just mining it for cool sounds. We've said instrumentals tell a story with just the music. This is a song called, and you'll know the whole story right away as soon as I say the title, Revolt of the Octopi. (laughs) And darned if that isn't what it sounds like. Here it is on Sound Opinions, Keyboard Money Mark. That is Revolt of the Octopi from Keyboard Money Mark, wrapping up our discussion of great instrumentals. For our complete list, you can go to soundopinions.org.
You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that is a track called Paranoia Conspiracy by the Chicago metal band Trouble. Greg, these guys go way back, formed in 1979. But they were progenitors of an era of metal that really came into its own in the 90s. Metal has so many sub, sub, sub genres. We can call it doom. We can call it stoner rock. Along with Candlemas and St. Vitus, Trouble was considered the band that connected the lines between classic British heavy metal bands like Black Sabbath and Judas Priest and the psychedelic rock of the 1970s. And in a time of hair metal and a lot of makeup, took it back to something real, something scary, something very, very heavy. The big impact was made in the 80s when they signed with Metal Blade Records. In the early 90s, they signed to Rick Rubin's Deaf American, and he produced their self-titled album in 1990. They have never been huge in the American mainstream, but the underground has loved them, and Europe, as often happens with these metal acts, embrace them most wholeheartedly. Over the last decade or so, there have been a couple of reunions. It's been a while since the band released a new album. The original vocalist, Eric Wagner, is gone. So is the original drummer. But there's a new vocalist there, Kyle Thomas. The uh, two men on the stringed instruments have been there since the very beginning, and they look like it. And there is this new record out now, the first in six years. It's called The Distortion Field. Here's a track called Hunters of Doom on Sound Opinions. Now fallen angels rise in excommunication Unsee the swords and wield the shields above our battle cries Stand tall and fight The wicked cannot hide From the hunters of That is Hunters of Doom from the New Trouble album called The Distortion Field. Jim, they have been less prolific in the last couple of decades, but really they gave us everything we could possibly need uh, over the course of those first half dozen albums that they put out between 1984 and, say, the mid-'90s. You know, the cult fans for metal, the, the ones who are the hardcore listeners to this genre of music, will rank those Trouble albums, three or four of them, in their top 100s or their top 50s of all time because they are that good and that influential. And the band has made no attempt to really update their sound or change their sound (laughs) on this record. You still got Bruce Franklin and Rick Wartell, who are really one of the great guitar combos. I mean, you mentioned Judas Priest, and I think that's an apt comparison. I can't think of any other double, too many other double-edged guitar metal bands of that ilk that are this good for that long. And, And these guys are certainly 
in that league, in that company. Uh, Franklin and Wartell are, are very, very good at what they do. The riffs, but also the depth, the, the sludginess, the psychedelia, sort of bridging that gap, and just the depth of the textures on those two guitars when they, when they play together. You know, I miss Eric Wagner. He was a key yeah. part of that band as a vocalist yeah. and as a lyricist, as kind of a, you know, a conceptual kind of guy. Well, you know, I the, think he was really key to that band. The story was he was a Catholic school kid, typical yeah. Chicago Catholic school kid, who just was rewriting all these lessons he remembered from catechism and great Bible stories in the lyrics. Well, which was an interesting take on the whole genre because they called him doom metal, which was, you know, quote-unquote uh, devil-worshipping music. But he was coming at it from the perspective of a believer. And, you know, the record company sort of tongue-in-cheek said it was... In, Instead of black metal, it was white metal, to which uh, Trouble kind of bridled at that terminology. But it it was clear even then that they were doing something different. So they don't have that perspective now. Kyle Thomas is a perfectly fine vocalist, but he's not Wagner. I think they miss his touch. They miss his vision. The sound is good, but there's four or five Trouble albums that I'd rank ahead of this one. It's a good good album, but I I would not say it's a a must-buy. I'd say it's a burn-it record. I'll tell you this, Greg. It is a better record than the Black Sabbath uh, recent reunion yeah, record, probably. right? I think we gave that a trash, and I would give this a burn it. It's not a trouble masterpiece, but I needed I needed some headbanging this week. I really, really <laughs> did, and it, it fit the bill just fine, and now I'm going to go back and dig up those older trouble records. So a double burn it for trouble. And speaking of our buy it, burn it, trash it rating scale, you've spoken and we have listened. We've been hearing for a while that the record review ratings are outdated outmoded and maybe even too harsh we want to fix that you can vote on our new rating scale at soundopinions.org we'll grant you that burning cds has given way to sampling music since we started doing this maybe you bristle at the idea of trashing any piece of art no matter how meritless go to soundopinions.org to place your vote help us figure out what the new rating scale should be greg what do we have on the show next week next week jim we have an in-depth interview with fleetwood max lindsey buckingham As always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn, Jason Saldana, and Annie Minoff. And our intern is Megan Murphy. Greg, for an astounding 400 episodes of this program, we have ended by gently poking fun at our executive producer, our fearless leader, Tori Southside Malatia, something we unapologetically stole from our friends and colleagues at This American Life. If anyone has ever doubted it, that always was done with the deepest love and affection. Much of what this show is today, we owe to him. We'll miss you, Tori, and we wish you the very best, and that's no joke. Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. This is Matt from uh, South Carolina, and in response to your question about cassettes, I just want to say, yes, I play cassettes like crazy, and so do all my friends. We make mixtapes, and there's a lot of really good music, local bands that put out their stuff on cassettes. Cassettes are awesome. They're never going to go away. Rock on with the cassettes. Last night at a party, exactly immediately I felt all excited Cause we 
Hi, my name is Carol. Regarding the 8-tracks, now I never got 8-tracks, although I'm certainly of an age where 8-tracks were part of my life. There's a guy, last time I checked, in Del Rio, Texas, and he collects them, he may sell them, he collects the players. Uh, I don't know the name of the place, but it always struck me that it was a really interesting pursuit. Talk to you later. Bye. This is Thomas Challenge. I'm calling regarding your cassette tape uh, story. I listen to a lot of cassette music, and I purchased a lot of cassette music. Great, great collection. Started this because my personal work truck only has a cassette player. So I listen to a lot of cassette tapes driven by boredom driving. All right. I get a hard time for having all the cassette tapes that I'm not ever giving away. Right now as we speak, I've got Ice Cube death certificate in the car. Evan Dando bootleg, Liz Fair bootleg, bought from Atomic Records in Milwaukee. Love the tapes. There is nothing better in the world than getting a mixtape. I still have Baldy Tunes 1 and 2 from my friend. I'm really excited for that day. Peace. My name is Rebecca, and I live in Oakland, California. Oh, I just wanted to let you know that I still have all my cassettes, particularly a box of cassettes that I used to take to dance parties because I grew up in Philadelphia, and everybody was supposed to dance at parties. So a collection of R&B and Motown and rhythm and great old jazz cassettes. My name is Rich, and I just heard the segment about cassettes four days. I still own my sets from when I was a kid and have a double cassette player on my home stereo and still listen to some of those old punk demos that I grew up with and loved and still have a demo cassette of the Smashing Pumpkins from when I got to see them, one of my cherished prized possessions. So there you go. I'm still a cassette fan. Thanks. more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.